Hello again and good morning. This continues our series through the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve, Twelve Minor Prophets that were collected as one book by Hebrew scribes, always assembled in one scroll. And every week we've been reminding ourselves that though they were written in different chronological time periods, they are sequenced and ordered in such a way as to build upon the theme of this certainty of judgment on the one hand and salvation on the other. And if we were going to subtitle this series something other than majoring on the minors or uh, the book of the twelve or the minor prophets, we might call it Come Lord Jesus, because it is in Christ that for those who, who want to avoid God's judgment, but do want to receive the blessings of His salvation, it's only in Christ is that possible. That the judgment of God is meted out on His Son, and therefore we receive the salvation and the blessing that we did not deserve. And each minor prophet has been layering more and more of the expectation of who Christ will be and what He will be like. And we're skipping Jonah. For those of you who've been here every week and you're wondering why we're not in Jonah this morning, we're skipping Jonah because, well, it's pastoral prerogative, and I want to do a series on mission later this fall, and the book of Jonah, to summarize the book of Jonah in a couple of sentences, it's kind of um, the overreaction to what we learned about in Obadiah last week. What did we learn about in Obadiah? That the enemies of God will be vanquished, right? And, and to all that, the people of God said, amen, the enemies are vanquished. And then you get a prophet like Jonah who is sent into enemy territory with the gospel, and he doesn't want to go because he doesn't think the enemy deserves to hear the gospel. He, he has no interest in someone other than him being a beneficiary of God's grace. And so he, he kind of misses the point of Obadiah, right? He overreacts that God even wants his enemies to be his people. And then we come to Micah. Now, Micah has many of the same themes that we've already covered in many of the other minor prophets, one of which... He, he sounds a lot like Amos. He's very disappointed and displeased with the social injustice that's happening both in Israel and in Judah, in Samaria and in Jerusalem. There's um, spiritual harlotry taking place. There's taking advantage of the poor. There's rigging court decisions so as to defraud the poor and the middle class of their property so that the leaders can have more and more. And Micah is very displeased with this behavior. Well... In verse 12 of chapter 1, he tells us calamity has come to the gate of Jerusalem from the Lord. In other words, God's not going to endure it much longer. The Assyrians are at the gate of Jerusalem, and eventually Jerusalem will fall. And he tells us in chapter 3, you can build your Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice, but Jerusalem eventually will come toppling down. He tells us at the end of chapter 3, Jerusalem's going to be overthrown. In chapter 3, verse 11, what do the Israelites say? What do the people of God say to the warning about the fact that even Jerusalem will come toppling down? They say, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come among us. We're God's people. We've got the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It doesn't really matter what we do because God is on our Side. And then in verse 5 of chapter 1, God answers this presumptiveness on the part of God's people. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. He tells us that calamity is indeed coming to Jerusalem, and he calls 
Jerusalem, a daughter of troops. Literally, that she's come under attack. She's a city under siege. You know, it's really not that easy to live a holy life when everyone and everything else is telling you that holiness really doesn't matter to God. That you can just do whatever it is you want to do as long as Jerusalem and the temple are over there. As long as I get to church on Sunday, everything's going to be fine and I can live however it is I want to live. Now I'm going to ask you an interesting question this morning. Aren't you glad that the world is falling apart? Aren't you glad that it's all going to a handbasket? Because let's be real for a moment. Apart from Christ, that's exactly what the world should do. We, we wouldn't want it any other way. The world to live apart from a holy God, to reject His holy and divine plan, and to think that they can somehow get along just fine without God is a presumptiveness in the face of God that He hates. Now, how is it, church, that we could pretend to honor and worship a holy God and pretend Monday through Saturday that He doesn't exist? We cannot do that. So if in these troubled times, in the times when Christianity is getting really, really weird, we're the oddballs, we're the bigots, we're the haters, and in a time when it's difficult in the media, in the press, in the workplace, in the home to be a Christian, as Christianity is getting more and more and more weird, how is it that we can persist in holiness? What is the basis by which we know that we actually belong to God? What is the reliable basis of salvation in a culture that accepts just about anything as salvation? Any God, any Jesus, any church, it all counts as salvation. We can just go along and get along and the exclusivity of the gospel and who Christ is doesn't really matter as long as you're sincere. doesn't matter if you're sincerely wrong. Just be sincere. Well, I submit to you this morning that we see at least three things in Micah 5, 1 through 6. To receive and enjoy God's true salvation in troubled times. To really worship and know God in a time when Christianity is weird, we must lay down our incomplete assumptions about how God delivers His people. We must lay down our incomplete assumptions about how God delivers His people. Secondly, we must seek God's deliverance through the ruler who lives for God. And finally, we must follow our shepherd king into battle, confident of his peace and his deliverance. First, we must lay down our incomplete assumptions about how it is that God delivers his people. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Micah records two lines of lament for the calamity that is overtaking the city and is overtaking the king. Micah wants us to see the low level to which the fortunes of the Judean monarchy have sunk. The venerable judge has become the whipping boy. No matter how bad things got, no matter how corrupt their leaders in Samaria and Jerusalem, no matter how oppressed the poor or how much spiritual idolatry was taking place, the people of Israel kept looking to Jerusalem and saying, as long as we can see Jerusalem, see, there's Jerusalem. We're good. We're good. Doesn't matter what we do. And to this arrogant, misguided thinking, Micah brings this word in verse 12 of chapter 3. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become the high places of a 
forest. Stacy and I, we struggled um, with fertility. We were married seven years, and we'd been trying and trying and trying, and we went to a bunch of doctors, and we were told to, you know, it's not going to happen unless you do X, Y, and Z. And then one day, January of 2007, Stacy brings me this little stick. And it's got multiple lines on it. And, and what this stick was trying to tell me was, um, you're going to have a baby. And what do we do? <laughs> well, we'd seen so many sticks without positives that we went and got another stick. Because we didn't, we didn't want to have a... We didn't want to have a false positive, right? Because you can, you can get false positives on those things. Well, we got like three or four positive pregnancy tests. Walmart and Rite Aid were grateful for our business. And then we went to the doctor and they drew blood. And they said, guess what? The, the tests are accurate. You really are with child. It's not a false positive. You are going to have a baby. Unfortunately, the people of God, Judah, was looking to Jerusalem and it was a false positive. They kept looking to Jerusalem and saying, I can live however I want to because God has said I'm his people. Because God has said that's his holy city and that's where he's placing his presence. And God says that's a false positive and Jerusalem's going to come crashing down. What is your false positive this morning? What, what is your cop out for really pursuing and chasing after a holy God? Is it a cheap version of once saved, always saved theology that says if you pray a prayer and walk an aisle and never have anything to do with Jesus the rest of your life, that somehow you've actually been converted? Is that your false Jerusalem this morning? Because God doesn't save you to get out of jail free. He saves you to pursue Him in a holy walk after Christ for a lifetime and to be in covenant community with His people, holding one another accountable that we might walk in holiness together. Is it that you are bringing your kids or your grandkids to church every week while actually failing to parent them at home? Helping them evaluate their priorities their friendships, their education, their values through the lens of the gospel? Is it, is it trusting in a feeling you had a long time ago? Is it that you got wet and somebody called it baptism? Is it that your grandfather or your father was a preacher? Is it that your family was in the church, on, in the house on which this church, in which this church was started? You see, God won't let us, North Roanoke, settle for less than His best. God won't let us settle for less than being pleased, not with Jerusalem, but with Him. And into the picture of a tattered and templeist Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that's going to fall so that we will no longer trust in the false positives, but we will trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Into this presumptive faith comes a babe born in Bethlehem. Which brings us to our second point. We must seek God's deliverance through the ruler who lives for God. We must seek God's deliverance through the ruler who lives for God. You might summarize that statement. You might shorten it and say, we must be in Christ, the greater Jerusalem. Here's what happens in Bethlehem. Jerusalem, the place of God's peace, the house of God's peace, Jerusalem is born in Bethlehem. 
Think about that. The one who really is Mount Zion, who ushers us into the presence of God, is born not in Jerusalem, the city of royal lineage, but he's born in Bethlehem. Zion is raised up in Bethlehem. God can even tear down the city of all the hope and all the promise and raise it up in lowly Bethlehem. And he challenges you and he challenges me. Seek where God is at work and he is at work in his son. Don't overlook him. Don't underestimate him. Within this drab frame of royal misfortune that we find in verse 1, Micah sets in opposition to that a glorious picture of royal majesty in verse 2. Following two lines of demise in verse 1, we get seven lines of God's promise in the following verses. To be among God's people, we must seek God's perfect king. If you're looking for those things to save you and not the everlasting son of Judah born in lowly Bethlehem, what is it like? It's like running to a city of troops, to a city under siege. If you're looking at all the externals this morning, it's like running into a city that's under aerial attack in order to be saved. And God says, stop running to those cities and run to the son who's born in Bethlehem. Who could have dreamed that so unimportant a place would breed a David. If God can turn an acorn into a mighty oak tree, Alan says, He can restore and indeed exceed the former greatness of Jerusalem and her kings. We ought to expect God to work in seemingly insignificant ways and in seemingly insignificant places. Of course, in this case, we ought not be too surprised that the location where the Davidic reset happens, where the greater David is born, is in Bethlehem. For David is from Bethlehem, the eighth born of Jesse, out there shepherding the sheep in the fields of Bethlehem. And God says, look back to Bethlehem. I'm going to take you back to the beginning. His goings are from long ago. He is like the king of David, and this ruler will be, look at verse 2, for me. He would be a ruler like David, but even greater than David. A king not only after God's heart, but of the very same heart as God his father. You see, the king who is coming is foretold to be a son of David with truly royal blood flowing through his veins. But Micah is not asking for us to pine for the good old days. But instead, to look ahead to the deliverance that will come through Bethlehem from the ancient of days. Yes, he's the king like David from long ago, and he's also the ruler from Judah. Psalm 89 tells us, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. And then in Genesis chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But it's not just that he's a king like David from a long time ago, he's also a king from the days of eternity, verse 2. You see, he's more than just the form of salvation, Jesus is salvation. When this ruler comes, who lives for God, who literally has the heart of God, he lives for God because he is God. He's got the heart after God. When we cast all our cares on this king of kings and this ruler, we find salvation that is God's and God's alone because he has lived for God. And in living for God, we find that he has also lived for 
us. Micah's message to Israel is clear and his message to us is clear. All of our hopes hang on the birth of a royal prince. And this prince, interestingly enough, verse 10 of chapter 4, would be born in the midst of our barren desolation in Babylon. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. Writhe in labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so it is still today. While the world seems to be enslaving and holding captive the people of God, we can still look to a babe born in Bethlehem for our deliverance. In the midst of a world that's getting weirder and weirder and more hostile to the gospel, we run to the son born in Bethlehem and find that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We cannot be born again to a new life in God unless God's ruler is born in Bethlehem. If God doesn't do in Bethlehem what He said He would do, re-raise up the presence of God through lowly Bethlehem, we can't be born. And guess what? The nations likewise cannot be born again unless we continue to give birth, to give witness to this everlasting King. It is only through Christ that, verse 3, look at this, the remainder of His brethren. It is only through Christ that the remainder of His brethren can be united with the sons of Israel. The babe born of a virgin in Bethlehem is the mountain of God's presence to which all nations must run for deliverance. Verse 2 of chapter 4 pictures for us a greater Mount Zion, a new Mount Zion, with all nations ascending that mountain in order to receive revelation and blessing from God Himself. How is that possible? It's possible because Jesus tabernacled in His flesh the very presence of God. And when we, by the Spirit's enabling power, run to Jesus, we are running up Mount Zion and we are receiving instruction and blessing from God so that we can take the blessing and instruction from God to all nations who have yet to ascend the glorious mount we call Mount Zion, the mountain from which God governs all nations. And you say, Daniel, that's, that's a bit of a stretch for me. I'm not sure I see all that in the text. Well, look what happens in verse 4. This shepherd king, this ruler who rules for God and who will make brothers out of all remnant, a remnant out of all nations. Look at what happens in verse 4. And he will arise and shepherd his flock. He will arise and shepherd his flock. How? In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. When Jesus arises or stands in verse 4, this alludes to a coronation ceremony in which the royal prince stood beside a pillar in the temple to be anointed in God's presence and acclaimed by the king, by, as king by his people. Let me, let me share something with you, North Roanoke Baptist Church. Jesus has taken his stand. Jesus has been acclaimed as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know how we know that. Philippians chapter 2. What does Paul say? 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. God's given him the name Yahweh. He is the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, all those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus, in going to the cross, in obeying the Father, despising the shame and giving His life for you and for me and being raised up on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus has taken His stand. Now here's the question. Now that Jesus has taken His stand, what should we do about it? We must, point three, follow our shepherd king into battle. Being confident of His peace and His deliverance. You see, God the Father has anointed Jesus as King. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you say, great, what difference does it make? The world, it seems to me, is falling apart. The world, it seems to me, is not getting any better. Well, we have to look at the world through the eyes of faith and understand that our King is a shepherd because shepherds protect their people from danger. Did you understand That the fact that we call Jesus shepherd implies the very fact that the world in which we live is not going to be a bed of roses right now. But that our shepherd is going to have to shepherd his sheep until he comes. And where is he shepherding his sheep to? Do you notice what happens in verse 5? He will be our peace. This one will be our peace. When? When the Assyrian invades our land. When the enemy seems to be overtaking us, when the enemy seems to be conquering us, when it seems like the world is lost, that's at the very moment that the King of kings and Lord of lords is shepherding his sheep. We need a shepherd for times like this. But we can't, our shepherd can't help us if we won't follow our shepherd. And do you want to know how it is that we follow our shepherd and declare his authority and that he is King of kings and Lord of lords? We follow the shepherd. To follow Christ as the divinely coronated king that he is, we've got to let him shepherd our souls. As John writes, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In verse 11 of chapter 10 of John, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13 20. He's the shepherd and guardian of our souls, 1 Peter 2.25. He's the chief shepherd of local churches who are led by his under-shepherds, pastors, teachers, elders, 1 Peter 5. And if we are the shepherd of his flock in the midst of enemy territory, we've got to let Jesus feed us. We've got to follow him. And we've got to find our protection in him. You see, if we remain in him, verse 4... If we find our safety and our security in Him, verse 4, He is our peace, verse 5. And He is, in verse 6, the one who delivers us from the hand of the enemy. The shepherd of the flock is the king of the kingdom who is marching into enemy territory as we show the world, North Roanoke Baptist Church, the one who is great to the ends of the earth at the end of verse 4. The whole earth 
belongs to our shepherd king. And we are the sheep of his pasture. Following him into enemy territory. Not with swords, but with the sword of truth. Trusting that as we give our very lives to him as a fragrant offering. That he will draw all men to himself. Because he is not willing that any should perish. No, not one. And even though he leads us into enemy territory, we are secure because look what he has to lead us with in verse 4. He has the strength of the Lord and he has the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. What does that mean? It means that the promised king is not prey to any human weakness. Even the death of a Roman cross could not hold this king. And he comes in the majesty of the name of the Lord, which means he comes in Yahweh's authority. He is the perfectly reliable shepherd king. There's no one else we ought to follow because there's no one else who has all the power and all the authority to guide us, North Roanoke Baptist Church, his sheep, to the ends of the church, right into the throat of enemy territory. Why? For the sake of his great name, because he's taking his stand and he is great to the ends of the earth. In the God given power and authority of Yahweh, the warrior, shepherd, king, born in Bethlehem, bringing Zion to us. In that king, we find not only our salvation, but we also find the very answer that our enemies need. Look what happens to Assyria. The Assyrian invades our land and he tramples on our citadels, literally our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. The tables are turned. The enemy thinks that they're winning. They seem to be getting the upper hand. But we show them the gospel by laying down our lives for them and taking up the sword of truth. And suddenly the enemy of God is shepherded by the people of God. God uses you and me, these seven shepherds and eight leaders, he uses you and me in taking his kingdom and his great name to the ends of the earth. So this morning, hear me and hear me well, North Roanoke, we do not wish our enemies defeated because we hate them. We do not wish our enemies defeated because we hate them. We do not read the news with a gloomy outlook thinking that the world is lost because we know who wins. We do not look at our enemies who attack us and say mean and nasty things about us and we do not hate them. We do not want them defeated because we hate them. Instead, we long for the surrender of our enemies because we love them. You see, we have found this shepherd king born in Bethlehem. We have found the one who brings Mount Zion to the people of God by which we can ascend to the Lord through faith in prayer. And we now have within our power by the Spirit of God who's been poured out on us the power to extend the domain of Zion's King to the ends of the earth as we carry the gospel eagerly looking for the day when heaven meets earth and the new heavens and the new earth are renewed and we know our King face to face. But until that day, We declare His peace. Look at verse 5, verse 1. Or the first line of verse 5. This one will be our peace. Paul picks up on this. He picks up on the fact that Micah writes about the one who will be our peace and then immediately talks about enemies coming into our land. Look at what Paul says in verse 14 through 16 of Ephesians 2. He writes this. 
For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law and its commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, God, through His Son, the shepherd king born in Bethlehem, takes the sin and the Yuck and the penalty that we were deserving God's wrath against. And He takes it for us and makes us one with the sons of Israel in Him. And God is sending you and me as His shepherds and leaders into Assyria this very hour. Into enemy territory this very hour. Until the whole world reflects that the King of kings and Lord of lords has Yahweh's universal power and His rule is to the ends of the earth. Victory over Assyria comes not just through a shepherd king, but through a shepherd king who's taking his flock into enemy territory. Brothers and sisters, we are no doubt in a strange world, we are no doubt in a fight. But He is our peace. Indeed, Isaiah says He is the Prince of Peace. And if the Prince of Peace is shepherd of our soul, we can endure the greatest of hostilities for the greatness of His name. Christ we proclaim, the name above every name for all creation every nation god's salvation through christ our shepherd king the son would you pray with me our father and our god in a world that seems ever growing in its hostility and opposition to you and your precepts and your people. God, we confess that that we want to hold on to lesser things than you. We want to hold on to our institutions. We want to hold on to our tradition. We want to hold on to so much that is less than who you are. And so, Christ, I pray this morning that you would renew our fervor For knowing and loving and serving the shepherd king, who is king of kings and lord of lords. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. This morning as we sing, I invite you to respond however it is the Lord has led you. Some of you might want to just sing heartily to the Lord. Others may want to come and pray for whoever the enemies of God are in your life, that you would be used of God to win them for the sake of our great King. Wherever it is, however it is that God is dealing with you, if you want to be a part of North Roanoke Baptist Church, you can come forward at this time and share that with us, and we can let you know how that takes place at North Roanoke. But whatever it is that God is doing in your life, we invite you to sing heartily to the Lord.